The Lord be with you, everyone. And I want to share tonight um, a story, a very well-known story from the New Testament, which I trust will bring together everything we have said in the last three sessions. This business of being merciful and receiving mercy. I don't want to leave it until I believe we've got it really in our heart. And I think a story will do that maybe better than just talking around it. So it's in Luke in chapter 10 and in verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer that is not an attorney. Um, A lawyer in the Gospels is referring to an expert in the law of Moses. He's a a religious expert in the law. And so this expert of the law stood up. That is, he interrupted Jesus while he was speaking, which was the way things were done in those days, and put him to the test. That is, this isn't going to be a friendly conversation. And he said, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, knowing full well what's going on here, said to him, Well, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And the the lawyer answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, Great, you've answered correctly. So do this, and you'll live. But wishing to justify himself, this question has sort of fizzled out for the lawyer. He wanted to have an argument about this, but Jesus has nailed him to the wall with the Old Testament Scripture. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And we'll come back to that. Jesus replied and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. And they stripped him, beat him, went off, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring in oil, wine on them, put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii, which is about two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands. And the lawyer said, The one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said, and I can see the smile on his face, Go and do the same. Okay, what is that all about? It is not just a wonderful story of Jesus and the cross and how he stepped into the ditch of our lives and rescued us. That actually uh, is deliberately avoiding what this story is all about. The whole story, the entire issue of this story, is in that question that the Pharisee lawyer asked him, Who is my neighbor? That sounds a weird question, Who is my neighbor? I mean, in in our language and in the language of the New Testament, it means one living alongside of me. It means a person who's close by. So why on earth would anybody ask, who is my neighbor? 
you understand, it, it's, it's a question that you take a double take when it's asked. Unless you were a Pharisee in the days of the Gospels. What, what you see, love your neighbor as yourself. That, that's the command. And to, to answer that command, they said, well, who is my neighbor? Do, do you see now what they're saying? It, it was not just saying, who's my neighbor? It was saying, just a minute, that the law says that I must love my neighbor as myself. Well, obviously, that can't mean that literally, you understand, they said. I, I mean, you can't go around loving everybody that you meet and are close by you. Of course not. So, they debated. This debate that caused the fellow to ask that question had been going on for years. They debated back and forth, who is my neighbor? And they were really saying, who can I dismiss as unimportant? Of all the people that I come to be close beside in life, who of them are really my neighbor? I know that they are close beside me, but of course God doesn't expect me to love everybody. So who among all these people can be dismissed as unimportant? Who can I be indifferent to? And who can I hate? Who could I destroy? Because only a very few, obviously, are neighbors to be loved. That was the debate of the Pharisees. And they, they were arguing, who is it that falls outside of being my neighbor as we want to understand neighbor? Therefore, they are beyond my responsibility to love. And they would begin by saying, well, obviously the Romans are not our neighbors, even though they're just about omnipresent. They're on every street and I can see their garrisons everywhere. Uh, but they're, they're the Roman army of occupation. You understand that they're our enemies. So we could never think of them as the neighbor that we have to love. So dismiss the Romans. In fact, it would be an act of God to put a knife through their heart. And so they, they quietly stood behind the zealots who were the sort of suicide bombers of the day. And they, they sponsored them and gave them a place to hide and keep their arms and, yeah, because obviously Romans are not our neighbor. And then, then the Gentiles, you know, those people, everybody in the world who is not a Jew, well, of course God didn't expect us to love Gentiles. I mean, Gentiles, they're such disgusting people. They don't even know the law exists, let alone keep it. How could we ever think God wants us to love the Gentile. They're not our neighbors. And then, of course, there's all those immoral people. I mean, they may be Israelites, but, um, well, they're immoral. Their behavior is disgusting. So we could never love immoral people. It would tarnish our rep reputation. It would, it would make us dirty by just even getting alongside of them, so they're not our neighbor either. And I suppose we have to love all Pharisees, they said. Well, no, said others, not all Pharisees, because not all Pharisees are as spiritual as, at least I am, uh, and therefore if I loved all Pharisees, it would be a step down in some cases. No, I, I can't love all all Pharisees, they've got to believe what I believe. They've got to be spiritual as I'm spiritual and keep all the rules that I keep. I suppose the other Pharisees, well, there's another degree of love for them. You know, I accept them, but let's not get serious about it. Can you imagine debating all that stuff for years to see who I have to love and who I cannot love and who I can hate and who I can murder. And so they come to Jesus with this question, who is my neighbor? That's not just a 
question off the cuff. This is the question they've been debating, and they're trying to draw Jesus into this idiotic debate. Who is my neighbor? Who is the person who's close to me? Who is the person that lives alongside of me? Jesus took that question out of that religious debate. He took it right out and he placed it on a dangerous, lonely road running through the deserts of southern Israel. I've been on that road when, when I was in Israel and I decided I want to see this road that Jesus built a whole parable around. And now I want to see what it was like for these people to be going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's, it's a road that leads directly down from the high mountainous area of Jerusalem straight down. It's only 17 miles long but steep and it goes through the most terrible desert. It's so lonely with its ravines. You feel that there's not another soul for a thousand miles. And the heat is intense. 17 miles through the desert, descending steeply from Jerusalem down to Jericho alongside of the River Jordan. Oh, it was the perfect place for muggers robbers, and any travelers that went down there all by themselves were really foolhardy. Most persons who wanted to go to Jericho would find others going at the same time and go as a sort of little band. Travelers were mugged, robbed, killed all the time. It was so notorious that it was nicknamed the bloody road. So when Jesus said that this Jew was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, everybody knew exactly the road he was on. And they also immediately tapped into everything they'd heard that has happened so recently over the last weeks and months of people mugged and killed, robbed, Oh, yeah. And I I said it was a Jew. It says a certain man. But you see, a certain man within Israel was always assumed to be a Jew. It was not a a place where you'd find every nationality under the sun. So it was a Jew going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when Jesus said that he was beaten, stripped of his clothing robbed and left naked, looking very much as if he was dead, half dead. Everyone knew what he was talking about. Let let me just zero in on that man as he lays naked in the ditch, beaten in, in a pool of his own blood in this terrible heat. And, and and here come the flies buzzing around the blood. And above, you can see the circling vultures waiting to get closer and closer and come peck out his eyes. And yes, it's, just, it's a terrible, terrible image that is just passed over here in a few words. But if you go to the place, you can see what really happened. And here the fellow lies on the side of the road, And then it says that a certain priest came by. Incidentally, it says by chance. That that is, it was an unexpected encounter. The priest. And why would the priest be on that road? And why would he be alone on that road? Well, you see, the priests, they, they operated in the temple which was in Jerusalem. But the priests were of the tribe of Levi, And the tribe of Levi had no geography to call its own. So you could go to a geographical place to all the other tribes of Israel, but not Levi, because Levi were the priest class. And so they had no geographical location, but they lived in certain cities that were designated for them to live in. Jericho was one of those places. 
And so the priest is coming, he's going home after he had his time in the temple. And any thief, robber, mugger would see he's a priest, there's no point in mugging him. And, And so the priest was fairly safe, fairly safe in going down by himself. He goes. Now, um, he, he sees this naked human being in blood and flies on the side of the road. I say it was a chance encounter. Interrupted his reverie as he's walking down the road. But you see, immediately, whatever other thoughts he might have had, there's one big thought One of the tricks that the robbers played was that one of their own would lay on the side of the road, looking as if he'd been mugged. And when some do-gooder would come over to look, at least, or try to help, then he would leap up and grab them, and the would-be do-gooder would be the victim. That was often done, and so you come upon this man on the side of the road, and if you go there to look and spend any time hanging around that body, you could be asking for trouble. That would be number one thought that would go through the head of of this priest. Um, He's afraid that he's going to end up as the real victim, But also, he's a priest. So, what's he been doing? Well, there were so many priests that that you didn't get to do your duty in the temple every week or every month. You were on a schedule, and it was the highest honor of the year that it falls your turn to go to the temple and be part of all its services. And, And obviously, it had fallen his lot. And so now he's fulfilled this incredibly glorious time in the temple and he's on his way home. And he's full of it. He had to be. He's, he, I mean, he can still hear the temple choirs as they sing psalms to God. And he joined in with great delight and joy. He still remembers the reading of the scripture and he remembers sitting down with the elders and talking and debating and what does that mean? Oh yeah, it had been a time, time and time again. It would live in his memory for months to come. And he's now left the temple. He's on this terrible road, but he's going home. And he can still hear all the wonders of the temple. And suddenly, slam, unexpected, he's staring at a half-dead or maybe, who knows, maybe dead. He's looking at him. From the spiritual heights of worship, he's slammed down to earth, right into the desert sand, stained in blood, and a man lying there half-dead. Oh, come on. Who, who, who needs to leave the wonder of spiritual heights to risk your life for a man who looks dead idiot? I'm out of here. Get back to remembering the days in the temple. And so to the other side of the road, make sure I put distance between me and kick up my heels and get away from here fast as I can. Well, then said Jesus came a Levite. Now, the Levite, the same tribe as the priests, but not of the priestly family. And and so a Levite would be the assistants in the temple. Something like what we would call a deacon, but a full-time position. And, And so he too is on his way to Jericho, which would be his home too. And as he came... Jesus makes the point he came to the place as if he he was kind of came right up to the body. He's not just looking at it from the other side of the road. He comes right up to the body and he sees the terrible state of this person and he hesitates. He looked at him 
Um, Jesus' words give us the impression that this man did not rush on by. He stopped, looked, and, and, and things are going through his head. But basically for the same reasons of the priest. He looked at the man and made his choice. Get out of here as fast as I can. I've got to get to my wife and kids who needs what this challenge is. And he's gone. And the man's life is sapping out of him by the minute. And the vultures are getting closer. And then, said Jesus, came a Samaritan. Now, a Samaritan. I, I said that they had decided that the Romans were not neighbors and could be killed if necessary, all in good faith, um, and Gentiles. But high up on there, in some cases equal to or worse than a Roman would be a Samaritan, of all neighbors, the Samaritans were the most hated. Now, I don't know if you know a map of Israel but far to the north, you had the Sea of Galilee, and that whole area around the sea is called the Galilee. And they were the peasant Jews. It's where Jesus loved to live and do his ministry. But then, if you go down just a little south, you come to Samaria. It's right there in the middle. And then at the end of Samaria, you come to Judea. And we're back again in Israel and the Jews from whence they come from the word Judea or Ju Judah. And um, who, who are these Samaritans stuck in the middle? Well, it was centuries old, <clears throat> around 500 years or more, when the Assyrians came and they took all the Israelites that lived in that area and, and took them off to prisoners of war in other countries. And they left behind just a scattered few people. And then they brought in prisoners of war from all other countries. And so they mixed them all up together. And the peoples from all other countries intermarried with the Israelites that had been left behind and they got the name based on the city there called Samaria. And there they were. They, they, they were like dogs in the pound. They were a bunch of mutts. They, they, all, all spare parts made up a Samaritan. No one knew where they came from. They couldn't trace their genealogy back to anything or anybody. And they, they were the disgust of the Jewish people, a mixed race. The Jews, they live for their ancestry. They, they live for their genealogy that took them all the way back to Abraham and beyond. Oh, they, they knew where they came from. We're a pure race. They, they, these people, they, they, they're just pariah dogs that have messed up our land and they live here without invitation in the middle. And what do they worship? They don't have a clue what they worship. I mean, every Tom, Dick, and Harry brought with them their religion when they came and they mixed it all up together with a bit of stuff from Moses and the temple and the... It was... Uh, no, no. We, we can't associate with people that even don't know what they worship, who do not worship the true God. Their, their language is a mishmash. Bit of this, bit of that, and their stupid accent. They hated them. In fact, over the centuries, a deep hatred, feud, if you like, had developed. And when a Jew met a Samaritan on the road which they tried to avoid, but it happened every day. There was a fight for sure. There was rock throwing, and you could find yourself dead quite easily, and the, there wouldn't be any legal recourse because, well, that's what happens with Jews and Samaritans. Everybody on both sides had a history of being hurt by the other, Everybody knew a friend, knew a relative, maybe right in their own family, someone who had been 
brought to pain, even crippled by the other side. Oh, how they hated each other. <laughs> and of course, whenever you're going to tell a story and you need the bad guy to show up, you introduce a Samaritan. That was always the case. And so when Jesus says a certain Samaritan, everybody thought now he's going to introduce the real villain. Now the Samaritan, he's going to finish the Jew off instead. And, and I cannot, unless maybe you've picked up what I'm saying, but I would say it's almost impossible to understand the stunned horror, as Jesus said, that the Samaritan saw the man in the ditch and was moved with compassion and got into the ditch and began to apply first aid. Oh, come on. That's not what Samaritans do. It... He left them speechless, thoughtless. What what do you do? I I suppose something like today, if, if in Israel a Jew saw Hamas lying in the ditch, is he going to go and, you know what I mean? It's, no. And of course, the Samaritan, he had all the concerns that the other two had. He was risking his life in going down in that ditch. But also, he's got something else. You see, he's a Samaritan. Here's a Jew that at best has been severely beaten up. Supposing the police came by and they see a Samaritan bending over a half-dead Jew. Do you think they'd stop and ask questions? He would be arrested for the crime. And no attorney would be able to stop it. Oh, no. He was taking his own life and reputation into his hands. And what did it was compassion, or the word we have seen in these last weeks, mercy. This is a divine kindness. And compassion, it rose above all the barriers that... I've just been talking about. It it rose above all the hatred, all the disgust in the other person. It rose above all the pain that any Jew had ever inflicted upon him and his family. Compassion. Compassion, mercy, is standing in another's skin, feeling what they're feeling. It is walking in their shoes. And as we've said before, compassion, the very word originates from our inner organs when we feel to the point where we can actually physically feel. This is not some emotion that's locked back inside of us somewhere. This comes out and sort of embraces us and, and every part of our being goes out to the person. And it's a mixture of anger and love. It is anger that this should ever happen to a human being and love that says, I cannot leave. I must bring help to this man this woman. That's that's compassion. Let me put it this way. Compassion is is not just a a beautiful thought, you know, pity. And you you feel very, what, right in in, feeling pity for a person. I, I wish I could help I really do, but you see, I have this appointment, and I, I've just got to go. Um, or, I, I'm so sorry, I will pray for you. No, Jesus says he went to this man. He got off his donkey, and his feet get into the burning sand, and he goes down to where the man is, And then it says he poured in oil and wine. 
uh, the wine, of course, alcohol would be for first aid, an antiseptic. The oil for healing, it was a common first aid that people carried with them. And then uh, he lifted him out of the ditch so that the man's blood is on his hands and the the dirt of the sand is... Uh, and he brings him to his donkey and, and he gets him somehow on top of the donkey and then leads the donkey down the road. Do you realize anybody passing by would think that that is a Jewish master and his Samaritan slave is leading him on the donkey? This man has taken a tremendous step of humility in order to put love out to this man. That's the way it is. And he comes to the inn and he says, he kept him. stop a minute there. What does that mean? It means he put him in a bed and he washed his wounds, did whatever else he could do that couldn't be done by the road. And there he is waiting through the night, bringing him water and taking the sweat off his brow if he was running a fever. Can you imagine the scene when the Jew finally opened his eyes and saw that a Samaritan was doing all of this? I just leave that. I mean, obviously they continued through the night to the morning, and then the Samaritan must leave, and so he leaves money with the innkeeper. It looks as if this Samaritan was a traveler, sort of a salesperson or something. He was traveling, and, and so he said he knew the innkeeper, and, and he said, when I return, as if I do this on a regular basis, and he says, I'll, I'll pay whatever more you, you need, but just take care of this man. Don't let him go until he's healed. Huh. Do you understand Jesus was answering the question, who is my neighbor? I think that sort of blew the question out of the water. Who, who wants to approach it anymore? I mean, Jesus has answered it. In fact, he answered it with a twist because he didn't say, who is my neighbor? He twists it and says to the uh, Pharisee lawyer, basically, the question is, Whose neighbor are you? You're sitting there saying, who shall I look at as neighbor? Jesus said, as people come to you, you're asking, whose neighbor am I? That is the responsibility on my shoulders to be the neighbor. Okay, I, I want to, okay, I've told the story. Take a second look because th there's so much here. Jesus portrays this chance meeting with the man's worst enemy who is dying in the ditch. And the man acts in this fashion we've seen of compassion and mercy. Look, that was not a passing whim. Please, please get this. This was an extreme case but the way he immediately acted in this extreme case tells me where he's coming from deep inside of him and has been coming from these many days. I say it again, the mercy that he showed, the kindness that he gave, was not a passing whim. It wasn't, oh, look, there's a man, maybe I've got, no. Any natural person under these circumstances might well have gone on with the priest and the Levite. This was not a this was a massive decision. Do you remember there was a thing people put on the back of their cars some time ago? I haven't seen it recently, but but it was that we were to do what did they say? Random acts of kindness and senseless acts of love. What absolute balderdash, you know. Random acts of kindness. It, it, it comes from nowhere. It's just on the top of my head. It just bomb hit me. I'll just do that kindness. Don't know why. Just felt good right then. 
and a senseless act of love. Something stupid. I would never do this normally, but it's just an act of love. Please flush that down the toilet. That's got nothing remotely to do with, with the, the gospel of God's love. It's, it's never a random act. It's never a, a senseless pop into the head. No, this comes from the deepest part of this man. This, this long before this Samaritan met with this extreme case of facing his worst enemy in the ditch, long before that, this man had an attitude that was rooted in a certain belief system. We all do. We all do. You act out of a, an attitude toward life which is rooted in a belief system. And that belief system ordered his thoughts. His thoughts regarding Jews. Yes, you see, every Samaritan had an attitude and a belief system when he came to Jews. And that belief system formed all words and all actions. This Samaritan had a belief system about Jews that was utterly different to all the other Samaritans and Jews. You could say that he lived, and I have to say this, because of the situation at that time with these people coming up against each other all the time, this, this man had to have lived this long time with an attitude that continually said, forgive them, they know not what they do. And it would be, forgive my brother Samaritans for what they do. Forgive the Jews, for they know not what they do. He stands as the odd man in the middle of this ongoing feud. He didn't fit in with the other Samaritans. The other Samaritans, they would have left the man in the ditch. Of course they would. Let him die. Or, or better yet, finish him off. One less Jew. And then they would go to the bar that night and celebrate. Yes, I left a Jew to die in the ditch. And everybody would buy drinks all round and celebrate. But this Samaritan, he, he saw through. He saw through the barriers of race. He doesn't have to decide that because it's a Jew, this is going to be something extraordinary. He saw through it. He saw through color. He saw through religion. He saw through the odd mixed language. He saw through all the hurt and the pain that the Jews had given to him and his family over the years. Yeah, you, you can't read this without seeing it. This, this Samaritan saw, in that sense, not a Jew. It didn't matter whether he was a Jew, an Arab, Samaritan, that's beside the point. He saw through race. He saw through the fact that this Jew condemned him for his religion. He saw through the language barrier that was there between them. He saw through it all, and he saw a human, and he saw a human loved of God and of great worth, a human to be honored respected and saved from death at any cost. What a Samaritan. This Samaritan knew more of God than all the Pharisees put together. He showed compassion. He showed mercy with intention. Yes, I'm still talking about that silly thing on the back of cars. It was intention. Or something that I, I often use is he owned his compassion. That is, he didn't have to refer to what would he think, what would she say concerning his friends if they saw me doing this. Or 
He didn't have to wonder, what would this Jew think when he understands it's a Samaritan who's helping him? That, that is, the, he had no reaction to the pressures that acted upon him to bring him from the truth. He, he acted out from who he is. It, we, we quoted this before, um, and I want to mark off a, a part of it here. It's 1 John 3.16. That is the first letter of John 3.16. Let me quote it again. We know love by this, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and beholds his brother in need, now listen to this, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? That phrase, closes his heart against him. Okay, let it jump out at you. Look at it in red. (laughs) Closes his heart against him. That is, it was a deliberate choice to close the door of my heart, to hold back from compassion and to go on my way. Which means that when one shows mercy, it is intentional. It is not a reaction to what others would say or think. It is an intentional action, not a reaction, to open my heart and be who I truly am. I mean, what kind... Please, I've read this for 60 years, and (laughs) these are the questions... What, what kind of man is Jesus describing here? I mean, look, he, he's sitting there in, in, in the midst of people that live in this continual warfare with the Samaritans, and he, he talks like this. Who, who is this Samaritan that is totally unlike any Samaritan or any Jew? because of his compassion and mercy. The Old Testament question, who is my neighbor? Comes straight out of the law, the book of Deuteronomy, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the question of the twisted human heart, then who is my neighbor? Who do I really have to love? That's that's all, all Old Testament. Jesus in get this in this story jesus is introducing us to the new man or even new mankind of the gospel that he has come to bring into being oh please get this get this jesus didn't come just to get you to heaven so you can live in a golden house <laughs> it's not in the bible Jesus came into the midst of this twisted, broken, darkened human life. And carrying it to death, he brought about the new mankind. And he is the first and the origin of that new mankind. He is God joined into our humanity to bring about mankind as we were originally intended to be. This this is massive. He is describing himself and at the same time declaring the others, you and I, who joined to him would be his body, the continuation of him in the world. Look, Jesus continually saw through race. We touched on it last week. He saw through gender. He did not in any way treat women the same way as the rest of that generation. He saw through society status. 
He could talk to beggars. He could talk to PhDs. He could talk to everybody, treat them the same. And it didn't matter the the people, what they had done in the past or what they were presently doing. He could see right through it to their heart. That's why Luke 15 says it all. He's the shepherd who does not judge and condemn the sheep, but goes to find it. He's like the woman who finds the coin. He's he's the, the father who embraces the son covered in pig muck and just showers love upon. I I heard a song today as I was coming to record where we were saying that We stand as beggars before the love of God. We don't. The love of God sees through our wretchedness and embraces us and kisses us all over and robes us and takes us into the feast. That's Jesus. He called us pearls of great price that he was looking for all the time. He called us treasure hidden in a field covered in the dirt, but... You see, God love poured now into us through the Holy Spirit. That's what new birth is. That's what came out of the tomb of resurrection. That's that's the life, the eternal life that God gives to us. That God love poured out in our hearts cancels out all the despising of other human beings for a thousand reasons we've made up. Or the categorizing of people that they're in this box and they're not as good as me. Or all the circles we draw to say that you can come into my circle because you believe what I believe, but you stay out. I I, I don't want you because you're not exactly like me. And, and our degrees of love, the way we treat people, huh. We love some people more than others. Well, of course, there, there is the love of family, which is unique. But then that love that the Holy Spirit has poured out in our heart reaches out, reaches out to all kinds and peoples. Because that mindset of Adam, that, that is that self for self, that brings about all these behaviors of unlove, was crucified with Christ. And now we, we've been brought into this incredible life through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit of Christ living within us. Look, Jesus said, um, he was giving the meaning of his death and resurrection. In John 12, 23, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man, that's himself, to be glorified. That is, this is the glory. This, this is what I came for. What is that? He said, truly, truly, I say to you, listen to this, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What's Jesus saying? He's the grain of wheat, a totally new and other grain of wheat that's never been seen among men before. The Samaritan, who loves with a love never known on earth before. But Jesus said, I could abide alone. I could be the only one with that. But I shall fall into the earth and die. And what happens when a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies? It multiplies. If it dies, he said, it bears much fruit. And what's the fruit? It's grains of wheat exactly like the original. Jesus said that he would die and he would rise again and in so doing bring forth a whole new race of humans in whom his love life lived and moved through the Holy Spirit, so that his love becomes our love, so that his kindness and mercy is expressed through us. Paul said it, Philippians 1.8, is one of the most amazing little statements in the 
scripture, and, and it was not written as a piece of theology, as the most personal letter. I mean, so it's a sort of a, just threw it out. He says, I long after you with the compassion of Jesus Christ himself. And in the light of that, I pray that your love will abound more and more. Did you hear what he said? He said, I'm not trying to be like Jesus. He's not saying, now what would Jesus do? No, he says, the compassion of Jesus Christ himself, that is not as an ancient figure, but himself now within me through the Holy Spirit. He said, I long after you with his compassion. That's what is eternal life? It's not living forever. That, that's, that's another department. Yes, you'll live forever, but don't call. Uh, eternal life it is the very life of God, and the life of God is love poured into us. We live now participating in the very life of God. See, when we, we you and I, Believers, when we act in unloving ways, there's really only two reasons we do that. The one is we're ignorant of what we've been delivered from. See, if, if I think, I'm just going to say this prayer after the pastor, and it's, it's got magic in it, because if I, if I just repeat his words, then I will go to a wonderful place when I die. Well, then I just go on living a normal, semi, you know, churchy, normal life. Because did anyone tell you that you have been taken out of the greatest darkness of the lie that Satan controlled the human race with? And Jesus' blood has completely destroyed the works of the devil, cut you off from that and delivered you into this incredible relationship with love that has forgiven you and exalted you to be seated in heavens right now in union with Jesus, fellowshipping with the Father in the Holy Spirit. You see, when I know that, then... I realize the very foundation of all life is love. And therefore, I recognize that living there in the very heart and presence of God translates into loving my neighbor. Wow, there are tens of thousands totally ignorant of what this gospel is. Um, We've forgotten who we are. We've forgotten what we received. People are asked these days, do, do you believe the gospel? That's Because of the word, the way Western civilization uses words today, that doesn't mean anything anymore. Do you believe the gospel? I, I don't know really what that means to, to the person today. I mean, believe it? Do you believe it exists? Do you believe... No, let, let's... let's ask a question that speaks to this generation a little better. What we should be asking is, do you order your heart, your thoughts, and your actions, your very life, in accord with Jesus Christ risen from the dead? Do do you see what I mean? Do you believe the gospel? Yeah, yeah, I believe Jesus came back. That's this 21st century. That's how they see the word believe. But that's not what the Bible word means. So I say, reorder the question to yourself and to others. Do you believe the gospel? That means, do you order your heart, your very center of your being? Do you order your thoughts and your actions? Do you, that, that is the entirety of your life. Do you order it in accord, in, in sync with Jesus Christ the Lord? That's it. You see, our belief system, what you believe, is not fully formed until you act upon it. You be who you are. You be your belief. 
So there are things I, I don't do. Uh, that, that's not because there's a book of rules in the church that says I mustn't do it. I, I don't do it because it's inconsistent with who I am. So I, I, I avoid gossip. I avoid slander. I avoid hurting others like the plague. Why? Not because I'm some extraordinary person. It's because I'm one with Jesus, you see. I believe that. And I believe it by through the Holy Spirit acting in accord with that. Do you see? It's not only things we don't do. It's things we do. And so we act love. We act kindness. We be merciful because we're in sync, in accord with Christ. Jesus is portraying himself as this Samaritan, but we now are joined to Jesus. For me to live is Christ, said Paul, says I, says you. I live, yet no longer I. Christ lives in me. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And so, what do we do with that? Recognize the Jericho Road meanders right through your living room, your home. That is, we, we walk through the life and right in our home, we find a thousand opportunities to love as I have been loved, to show kindness and mercy as I have received. The Jericho Road goes through my workplace, all the people I rub shoulders with. Where else do you think they are going to feel the impact of the gospel? Not because you give them a little tract because you become the gospel. just and, and it's not shooting Bible verses at people. It's not getting all spiritual and talking in that funny voice. No, it's just being kind. It's, it's acting as if you honor that person, see them as a pearl of great price wherever they find themselves on that Jericho Road, in your schoolroom, college, university, you know, in all your relationships, that's where the Jericho Road is, and that's where, by chance, just the coincidence of events, and here you find the opportunity, even though the person's a broken person and they're speaking out of their fear and they're speaking out of pain, speaking out of hopelessness and despair, we speak the words of love, very simply, with actions of love, sometimes just to be there, because there's nothing to say except to be there and love them. And other times, to share with them hope, share with them the love of God. In fact, everybody we meet, either we respond with indifference, are deaf to their cry, because we're wrapped up in our own agenda, we might even gloat over their downfall, or we respond with the compassion of Jesus. We act in giving ourselves, letting the Holy Spirit move through us in the moment in any way He urges us. You know, and I'll finish on this, something happens to you and I when we invest ourselves in another person. I've only got seconds left. I, uh, to go into that, just accept it, because the New Testament's full of it. Something happens to you at the deepest level of your being when you invest yourself in another, whether that be in forgiving them, whether it be in sharing hope in Christ with them, whether it be in giving financial offerings, that's what it's all. Forgive, it says, as we've been forgiven. Give and it shall be given to you. You give mercy and you'll receive mercy. Something happens 
We, we open a door to the other person, but at the same time, without our even thinking about it, that opens the door within us to receive more of the love and mercy of God, to realize what He is giving to us than ever before. Well, I think we're done with this. We've been three weeks here now. Next week we'll move on. So live this week in blessed, oh, supremely joyous, contented, satisfied, fulfilled of the merciful. For, something happens, they shall receive mercy. The blessing of the Lord be with you, everyone. The blessing of God, who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, fill you this day with the sense of his kindness, his mercy, and his extreme love to you, that out of your innermost being there shall flow rivers of love and kindness and mercy to all with whom you come in touch. So I bless you, and so it is.